Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is the story of a woman who became a true hero to millions of women and young girls. Her name known to us is Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley, whose life up until the age of 15 would rival that of any Dickens child creation, lived an incredible full life, becoming an international celebrity as well as a role model for young women. The top celebrity of her time, Colonel William F. Cody, called her Missy. The famous Sioux Indian chief, Sitting Bull, adopted her summarily as his daughter and called her Watanya Cecilla, meaning Little Sure Shot. She came to meet and know kings and queens and princes and the celebrities of her day. She offered the services of 50 women sharpshooters to President McKinley when World War I broke out, and she sued publisher William Hurst $27,000 for libel and won. She had a very ladylike tea with Queen Victoria, and yet could shoot with accuracy while standing on the back of a running horse. Although she was an Ohioan, a Midwesterner, she became a symbol of the rapidly disappearing wild American West through her long association with Buffalo Bill's Traveling Wild West show, where she was the most popular performer. No one else even came close. Today's story comes from a wide variety of sources, books, documentaries, old magazine articles, interviews, and newspaper accounts. In other words, this was a deep dive, because I wanted to know and share everything I could regarding Annie Oakley and why she meant so much to so many people. I can't think of another famous female from her era, or otherwise, who broke so many barriers, and who had to handle as much adversity as she did, and still maintain the level of coordination and concentration it took to consistently perform feats of expert marksmanship without missing like shooting the cigarette out of Kaiser Wilhelm's mouth at his request, a feat which, after World War I broke out, she admitted she probably couldn't be counted on for a second successful try. She was a girl with pluck who pulled herself out of a rough childhood and ended up excelling in what had always been considered a man's sport, so she was never without her detractors, and she handled it all with grace and never slowed down. Annie Oakley was born Phoebe Ann Mosey on August 13, 1860, in a log cabin less than two miles northwest of Woodland, now Willowdale, in Dark County, Ohio, a rural county along the state's border with Indiana. Her birthplace is about five miles east of North Star. There's a stone-mounted plaque now in the vicinity of the site, which was placed by the Annie Oakley Committee in 1981, 121 years after her birth. Through the years, some of her family memoirs changed the spelling to Mosey, M-O-S-E-Y. Annie herself argued that it should be spelled M-O-Z-E-E, which at least tells us how the family pronounced it, Mosey. Annie's parents were Quakers of English descent from Hollidaysburg, Blair County, Pennsylvania. Their names were Susan Wise, age 18, and Jacob Mosey, born 1799, his age 49, and they were married in 1848. They moved to a rented farm, later purchased with a mortgage, in Patterson Township, Dark County, Ohio, sometime around 1855. Back then, people had big families. Annie was the sixth of Jacob and Susan's nine children, and the fifth of the seven surviving. Annie's father, who had fought in the War of 1812, was 61 years old at the time of Annie's birth, and became an invalid from hypothermia, which he caught during a blizzard in late 1865. He died of pneumonia in early 1866 at the age of 66. Annie was six years old at the time, but he had already left her with a legacy. He had taught her how to shoot, and she had gone with him on a number of trips into the woods to trap and hunt for dinner. 
She later recalled how she could barely lift his heavy rifle. But one day, while standing on the front porch, she spotted a squirrel, balanced his rifle on the front porch rail, and shot it right through the eye. She was eight years old then, and that's where she was aiming, because to shoot any game in the body was to rob the family of a dinner. She found out early on that she had the gift of eyesight and coordination that made her a good shot, and she enjoyed shooting. That ability was to come in handy after her father died. In her autobiography, she wrote, I was eight years old when I made my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made. Her mother later married Daniel Brumbaugh, had another daughter, Emily, and then was widowed again soon after. Because of poverty following her father's death, Annie did not regularly attend school as a child, although she did attend later in childhood and in adulthood. On March 15, 1870, at the age of nine, she was admitted to the Dark County Infirmary along with her sister, Sarah Ellen. The infirmary was the county poorhouse, which was called the Poor Farm in her autobiography, where she said she was put in the care of the infirmary superintendent, Samuel Crawford Eddington, and his wife, Nancy, who taught Annie how to sew and decorate. Beginning in the spring of 1870, she was bound out or indentured to a local family to help care for their infant son on the false promises of 50 cents a week and an education. She received neither. The couple had originally wanted someone who could pump water, cook, and who was bigger than her. She spent about two years in near slavery to them, enduring mental and physical abuse. One time, the wife put Annie out in the freezing cold without shoes, as a punishment because she had fallen asleep over some darning. Annie referred to them as the wolves. Even in her autobiography, she never revealed the couple's real names. She wrote, Suddenly the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound coming out. According to biographer Glenda Riley, the wolves could have been the Studebaker family, but the 1870 U.S. Census suggests that they were the Abram Bowes family of neighboring Preble County. Around the spring of 1872, Annie ran away from the wolves. According to biographer Cheryl Casper, it was only at this point that Annie met and lived with the Eatingtons, returning to her mother's home around the age of 15. Soon she was able to pay off her mother's mortgage with her earnings. She had also learned trapping from her father, and by both hunting and trapping, she kept a steady stream of food and income coming. She sold the hunted game to locals in Greenville, such as shopkeepers Charles and G. Anthony Katzenberger, who then shipped it to hotels in Cincinnati and other cities. She also sold the game to restaurants and hotels. The Katzenbergers one time gave Annie a Parker 16-gauge, as good a shotgun as could be had in the U.S. at that time, well-balanced and light. They also gave her a tin of high-grade gunpowder. That was very hard to come by. Those gifts changed her from a country shooter to a professional. They also encouraged her to try shooting for cash prizes in matches, which she did. It was soon becoming obvious, even at the age of 15, that there was something about Annie's shooting ability that had that one-in-a-million quality. She was extremely smooth and fast. Nothing rattled her. She was very competitive and rarely lost a match. In fact, the few she lost became stories themselves. She was asked once if she ever let anyone beat her. Annie's first biographer, Courtney Ellen Cooper, interviewed the young Texas sharpshooter Johnny Baker, whom Annie had greatly admired and taught 
when Cody had hired him as a sharpshooter for the show late in Annie's career. Cooper asked him, "'Johnny, tell me something. "'When you used to shoot against Annie Oakley, "'and she always won, "'was it because you weren't trying "'or because she was a better shot than you?' "'Johnny Baker answered, "'There was never a day when I didn't try to beat her, "'but it just couldn't be done. "'You know, the ordinary person has nerves. "'They'll bob up on him in spite of everything. "'He'll notice some little thing that distracts his attention "'or get fussed by the way a ball travels through the air. "'Or a bit of light will get on the sights.' or seem to get there, and throw him off. I wasn't any different than the average person, but Annie was. The minute she picked up a rifle or a shotgun, it seemed that she made a machine of herself. Every action went like clockwork. And how was a fellow to beat anybody like that? To tell the truth, it would have made a better show if I could have beat her every few performances. But it couldn't be done. When Annie retired, Johnny Baker, who had been like a son to her, became the headline shooting act for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. By the age of 15, Annie was winning so many turkey shoots that she had to be barred from them. Today, those shoots require target shooting. The best shooter wins the turkey, and may be a cash prize. But back then, they would place a live tom turkey behind a log enclosure, which was just high enough that he would peek over to see what all the fuss was about. Anybody who knows wild turkeys knows they've got a big curiosity. The shooter never knew where his head would pop up, you had to be almighty quick to hit one. Usually there was a cash prize in addition to the turkey. Annie soon became very well known throughout the region. On Thanksgiving Day, 1881, the Bauman and Butler Shooting Act was being performed in Cincinnati. Traveling show marksman Frank E. Butler, an Irish immigrant who had turned professional shooter, placed a $100 side bet, equivalent to $2,500 today, with Cincinnati hotel owner Jack Frost that Butler could beat any local fancy shooter. The hotelier arranged a shooting match between Butler and the 15-year-old Annie, saying, The last opponent Butler expected was a 5-foot-tall, 15-year-old girl named Annie. After missing on his 25th shot, Butler lost the match and the bet. Butler soon began courting Annie, and they married. They never did have children. Their careers kept them too busy. A certificate on file with the Archives of Ontario reports that Butler and Oakley were wed on June 20, 1882, in Windsor, Ontario. They both lived in Cincinnati for a time. Oakley, the stage name she adopted when she and Frank began performing together, is believed to have been taken from the city's neighborhood of Oakley, where they resided. Annie and Frank toured as partners, until one day in Texas, a cowhand yelled at Mr. Butler, Get out of the ring and give the girl a chance! And Annie stepped into the spotlight alone, breaking glass balls as they were thrown in all directions, without a miss. After that show, Frank and Annie must have had a long talk, because the decision was for Annie to be the main attraction. A man who could shoot extremely well might win some prize money and gain some fame, but a young woman who could outshoot any man was definitely bound for fame and fortune. They decided that Frank would handle the books and be there to assist Annie in her trick shooting, which would mean the apple would go on his head and she'd be shooting the ash off the cigar in his mouth, sometimes using a mirror and shooting back over her shoulder to do it. Do you think that took some trust? They joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in 1885. At five feet tall, Oakley was given the nickname of Watania Cicilla by fellow performer Sitting Bull, that name meaning Little Sure Shot, and that's what appeared in the public advertisements. The story goes that eight years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn, in which the Lakota Sioux leader Sitting Bull orchestrated the defeat of General George Armstrong Custer, Sitting Bull was allowed to leave Standing Rock Reservation and was beginning to reach celebrity status himself, 
although he was still subjected to jeers and catcalls when making public appearances. He was able to attend one of Oakley's performances in St. Paul, Minnesota. This was March of 1884, just prior to her joining Cody's traveling show. Amazed at her marksmanship, the chief sent $65 to her hotel with a note asking for an autographed photo. And he knew well how to do that because giving away autographed photos was his way of making a living. Annie later wrote, I sent him back his money with a photograph, with my love, and a message to say I would call the following morning. The old man was so pleased with me, he insisted upon adopting me, and I was then and there christened Watanya Cecilla, or Little Sure Shot. In addition to the nickname that followed her the rest of her life, Sitting Bull also gave her a pair of moccasins that he had worn at the Little Bighorn. Annie Oakley never spoke ill of anyone publicly. In private, though, one chubby little lady working with the Wild West Show did get on Annie's nerves, and we'll get to that story right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the incredible life story of Annie Oakley. During her first engagement with the Buffalo Bills show, Oakley experienced a tense professional rivalry with rifle sharpshooter Lillian Smith. Smith was 11 years younger than Oakley, age 15 at the time she joined the show in 1886, which may have been a primary reason for Oakley to alter her actual age in later years due to Smith's press coverage becoming as favorable as hers. Lillian had a mouth on her, and was known at times for being very unladylike, something no one ever accused Annie of being. Once, Smith said openly, Now that I'm here, she's done. She meaning Oakley. Lillian Smith was known as a rapid-fire shooter. She was able to break numerous glass plates or glass balls thrown in rapid succession using a rifle instead of a shotgun, which is a feat indeed, and as you well know, rifles only fire a single bullet, and a shotgun fires a load of buckshot, making targets much easier to hit. In the early stages of the Wild West show, Lillian became known as the rifle expert, while Annie was known as the shotgun expert. This rankled Annie, because she was better with both. So she started working on acts that required her to shoot while moving, so she could one-up Smith. She mastered shooting from a bicycle, and then moved on to horses. She went to work on trick riding and shooting, performing a number of stunts. In one, she would lie full length on the horse's back at a canter and shoot targets, Next, she shot glass balls while standing on a moving horse's back. Yes, she was using a smoothbore gun, shooting birdshot for those mounted tricks. But what would you expect? Bullets? Actually, in the earliest days of the show, both Cody and fellow performer Doc Craven tried this with bullets, but the result was too many broken windows from houses located several blocks away. With this horseback riding, her husband Frank Butler was worried for her safety, and the show's very capable manager, Nate Salisbury, was also worried. Oakley was a talent they couldn't afford to lose, and Lillian Smith wasn't a full enough package to replace her. It was Nate who had spotted Annie and Frank rehearsing their act in a Louisville, Kentucky arena in early 1885, and he was immediately sold on them. But when they auditioned for Bill Cody, they were turned down because Cody already had a sharpshooter named Bogardus, and although he was nearing retirement, Cody had promised him a job, and to Cody, his word was gold. 
However, late that same year, 1884, a steamboat carrying the show's performers had sunk to the bottom of the Mississippi River. All the passengers were unharmed. They made it off safely. But Bogardus's firearms, as well as a lot of the show's materials, were lost in the sinking. In the days, weeks, and months after that, Bogardus, who was a world champion shooter, struggled with equilibrium and his new guns, and never retained his prior level of expertise, which frustrated him to no end. And he finally retired in March of 1885. Salisbury made another visit to one of Frank and Annie's shows, and offered them work on the spot, then offered to send them downtown to have tin types made, then ordered $7,000 worth of posters featuring Annie in different poses with her gun made from those tin types. Annie made her debut with Frank for the Wild West show in Louisville, Kentucky in March of 1885 in front of a crowd of 17,000 people and never looked back. They loved her. For the next 15 years, Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley shared the limelight in hundreds of performances in the U.S. and abroad. Nate Salisbury organized the tours and hired the performers while John M. Burke, known as Major Burke, fired up the press and turned out the crowds. As we'll discuss in a few minutes, Oakley temporarily left the Buffalo Bill show, but returned two years later, after Lillian Smith departed, in time for the Paris Exposition of 1889. This three-year tour only cemented Oakley as America's first female star. She earned more than any other performer in the show, except for Buffalo Bill himself. And she didn't have the expenses he had. She also performed in many shows on the side for extra income. When the Wild Rest Show came to London, all of England was excited to have an up-close look at America's Wild West. There were two command performances requested and given before Queen Victoria finally had her chance. The first one was ordered by Prime Minister Gladstone, and the second by the Queen's son, Albert Edward, Prince of Wales, who was the source of all the scandalous talk of the time and an embarrassment for the Queen. After the first performance, Cody, Annie, Redshirt, Lillian Smith, and others came to be presented to the Prince of Wales and his shy, gentle wife, Princess Alexandra. When it came time for Annie to shake, or at least touch hands with the royal couple, Annie ignored tradition and shook the princess's hand first. "'I'm sorry,' she said to the startled prince, "'but I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. Annie was known to be very conservative in manner, very quiet and reserved, and the least likely to ignore protocol. But in this case, the word was out that Edward was a philanderer and a bum to his wife, and it was very likely that Annie's sense of fairness took over. As it turned out, her shooting act was wildly successful, and London loved her. After Queen Victoria's command performance, the Queen summoned the troop for tea and a visit. She told Annie that she was a clever little girl. She was 27 at the time, but looked much younger. And the Queen couldn't keep her eyes off Red Cloud. As far as Cody went, according to one account, the Queen spent almost no time or attention on him. Maybe he reminded her too much of her son Albert. No one knows for sure. But Cody wasn't a rising star on her list. Cody, who was at that time the most known and talked about person of their time, in every way a superstar, was probably not affected by her lack of attention. Other press reports went deep into the Queen's admiration for Red Cloud, and later, Cody's wife Louisa accused both the Queen and Princess Alexandra of paying improper attentions to her husband. That was in a divorce suit she filed in 1905, so who knows what the truth really was. At the end of the London run, as the troop was packing up to head for Birmingham, England, Annie and Frank announced that they were leaving the show and heading back to New York. Although their reasons were never clearly defined, 
Many believed that at the time, Annie and Frank were being offered large sums to make guest appearances at clubs and matches, but manager Salisbury wouldn't allow them to participate. Annie and Frank had been with the show for three years, and maybe it was getting a little stale to them, and they wanted more freedom to perform outside for short periods of time. Lillian Smith could also have been a factor. She was a constant thorn in Annie's side, and the two did not get along. So Annie and Frank went on the road for themselves, and although they enjoyed the freedom, the money wasn't as frequent and profitable as they'd wished. Freelancing wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. Another showman of Cody's named Gordon Lilly, his stage name Pawnee Bill, offered them a steady routine on a short tour. It didn't take long for Annie and Frank to realize that they had had it pretty good with the Wild West show. Cody and Salisbury were back in New York now and gearing up for another tour of Europe, this time headed for Paris, Germany, and Northern Europe. They sat down with Salisbury and renegotiated a deal. It's very possible that Annie said she would not come back if Lillian Smith was still with the show, because when they returned, Lillian left. The 1891 tour through Northern Europe involved ten stops in Germany alone. Annie hunted deer with the Emperor of Austria, and won a running deer shoot from Grand Duke Michael of Russia for $350. It was a mechanical deer running on a track, and not a slow or easy target. Invited also to that event was Cody, who couldn't make it, as well as Lillian Smith, who did show up, missing three times and scoring one hit on the deer's haunches, a definite faux pas for which he was afterwards ripped by the press. Annie scored with three kill shots, winning the contest, and no doubt enjoying the victory over Smith, who said she would come back again with a lighter gun and pay the fine for hitting the deer on its haunches, although she never kept her promise. Throughout her career, it's believed that Oakley taught more than 15,000 women how to use a gun. Oakley believed strongly that it was crucial for women to learn how to use a gun, as not only a form of physical and mental exercise, but also to defend themselves. She once said, I would like to see every woman know how to handle guns as naturally as they know how to handle babies. She once did an interview with Rod and Gun magazine's Basilm Tozier, and this was in the fall of 1892, just when Annie was leaving the Wild West show with Frank to try going on the road themselves in the U.S. "'Did you ever feel tired of performances?' he asked her. "'I won't say never,' she said, "'but, well, hardly ever. "'Shooting, you see, has become to me second nature in a way. "'Sometimes, and very seldom, my eyes ache a little. "'While shooting, I scarce realize that I have a gun in my hands. "'I look straight at the object to be fired at, "'and the moment the butt of the gun touches my shoulder, I fire. "'A moment's hesitation invariably means a miss.' I use guns and cartridges of many makers, and both black powder and nitro compounds. One thing I am bound to admit, for the first-class gun, I should always come to England. Our American guns are well-built, well-finished, and shot very hard, but their balance is not perfect. The handling of an American gun is undoubtedly different from the handling of a gun over here. Then he asked, Would you think me rude if I asked your honest opinion of the shooting of English ladies? Ah, an indiscreet question, she laughed back as she filled my cup, he wrote. But as you wish my opinion, you shall have it. I do not believe that English ladies will shoot well or shoot with comfort until they dress differently. It is impossible to shoot brilliantly in a tight-fitting bodice, absolutely impossible. Again, how can ladies expect to walk in comfort through fields of wet roots if they wear skirts down to the ground? Their dresses are soaked, then clogged with mud, and pleasure gives way to misery. No, 
"'What they ought to wear if they wish to shoot at ease "'is a loose bodice of some soft material, "'tweed for choice, "'and a skirt about halfway up to the knee. "'Such a dress would look becoming, "'and surely, if ladies contemplate riding astride, "'to my mind a horrid idea, "'they cannot well object to dress for shooting "'in the way I have ventured to suggest.' Buffalo Bill was friends with Thomas Edison, and Edison built the world's largest electrical power plant at that time for the Wild West Show. Buffalo Bill and 15 of his show Indians appeared in two kinetoscopes filmed September 24, 1894. Annie Oakley and Frank Butler also performed in Edison's kinetoscope film Little Sure Shot of the Wild West, an exhibition of rifle shooting at stationary and moving objects, which was filmed November 1, 1894, in Edison's Black Maria studio at William Hess. It lasted 21 seconds at 30 frames and 39 feet. It was the 11th film made after commercial showings began on April 14, 1894. Oakley never failed to delight her audiences, and her feats of marksmanship were truly incredible. At 30 paces, she could split a playing card held edge on. She hit dimes tossed into the air. She shot cigarettes from her husband's lips. And when a playing card was being thrown into the air... She riddled it before it touched the ground. No one else ever performed those tricks with that kind of speed and grace. Late in October of 1901, the Wild West show was packed into a long train headed for Danville, Virginia, where they were to play their last show of the year. Annie Oakley and Frank Butler were asleep in their private car. Being a star has its perks. It was 3 a.m. in the morning when a railroad engineer named Lynch possibly not realizing that the show train consisted of two sections, pulled a switch at the wrong time, causing the show train to plow into a freight train loaded with fertilizer. Brakemen on both trains saw the collision coming and tried to slow the trains, succeeded in lowering their speed to about eight miles per hour, but the trains still collided and the carnage was terrible. The cars carrying livestock were the worst hit. Five cars full of horses were almost totally lost. Hundreds of horses either died outright or had to be put down. Cody estimated the loss at between fifty and $60,000, worse than the loss of the steamboat when it sank in the Mississippi. All the show's personnel were traveling in the rear cars, so there were few injuries, but there were some. Frank Butler told reporters that his watch got smashed when the collision knocked him to the floor, and Annie had wrenched her back and suffered a hip injury. They were both, however, able to walk away from the wreckage. The news focused on the loss of the horses and other livestock, which was going to be very difficult to replace, not to mention train again, for the show. Annie and Frank, however, would leave the show shortly after that wreck. She retired on the spot, claiming that the injuries she suffered in the wreck made it impossible to continue on, and at least at that immediate time, she probably wasn't dramatizing that claim. In all the years she had been with the show, she was only sick once from blood poisoning, which caused her to miss three days in New York. Up to that time, she'd been a tireless and steadfast performer. Recent Oakley biographer Cheryl Caspar maintains that it must have been for other reasons than injury that Annie and Frank left the show for good at that point. She discovered that Annie had competed in a show at Lake Denmark, New Jersey, on December 1st of that year, about a month and a half after the crash, hitting 23 of 25 live pigeons, and another shoot on Long Island on January 6th of 1902. What made news there was that Annie's hair had turned white. Frank told reporters that it was the stress of the train wreck that did it. Casper dug deep on this one and found a clipping in one of Annie's scrapbooks that mentioned a spa in Arkansas, probably Hot Springs, 
where she had been left in a mineral bath too long, and her hair turned white. Frank had secured a lucrative job as a representative for an ammunition company almost immediately after the wreck, and that was very likely the motivation for their leaving the show and settling down to the quiet life. Frank was in charge of product placement, making sure Winchester was being used in as many shows and competitions as he could arrange, and no one was better connected than he for that kind of a job. He also liked to tour with his company's shooting team, and Annie often went with him. Those were happy years for them. They were often equal in their shooting, but Annie never lost her touch. In fact, she seemed to get better with age, despite the train wreck. At one competition in 1906, she hit 1,016 brass discs without a single miss. In 1904, sensational cocaine prohibition stories were selling well, and fake news was just getting established in the major media, which was entirely newspapers in that day and time. Newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst published a false story that Oakley had been arrested for stealing to support a cocaine habit. The woman actually arrested was a burlesque performer who told Chicago police that her name was Annie Oakley. Now Hearst knew the truth, but published the lie knowing the headline would get readers. Of course, all the other papers followed with the same story, without verifying the truth. However, when the truth became known, some of them printed retractions in small type on the back pages. Others were so arrogant that they never bothered. Hearst, however, tried to avoid paying the anticipated court judgments of $20,000, equivalent to about $600,000 today, by sending an investigator to Dark County, Ohio, with the intent of collecting reputation-smearing gossip from Oakley's past. The investigator tried and tried and stayed for weeks, and turned up just what you would expect, nothing. Oakley spent much of the next six years winning all but one of her 55 libel lawsuits against newspapers. She collected less in judgments than the total of her legal expenses, but she was vindicated. In 1913, the Butlers built a brick bungalow-style home in Cambridge, Maryland. It is known as the Annie Oakley House and was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1996. In 1917, they moved to North Carolina and returned to public life. Annie continued to set records into her 60s and also engaged in extensive philanthropy for women's rights and other causes, including the support of young women she knew. She embarked on a comeback and intended to star in a feature-length silent movie. She hit 100 clay targets in a row from 16 yards at age 62 in a 1922 shooting contest in Pinehurst, North Carolina. In late 1922, the couple were in a car accident that forced her to wear a steel brace on her right leg. She eventually performed again after more than a year of recovery, and she set records in 1924. Her health declined in 1925, however, and Annie died of pernicious anemia in Greenville, Ohio, at the age of 66, on November 3, 1926. She was cremated, and her ashes buried at Brock Cemetery, near Greenville. According to B. Hagen, Frank Butler was so grieved by Oakley's death that he stopped eating and died 18 days later in Michigan. He was buried next to her ashes. One rumor claims that Oakley's ashes were placed in one of her trophies and placed with Butler's body in his coffin prior. Both body and ashes were interred in the cemetery on Thanksgiving Day, November 25, 1926. After her death, her incomplete autobiography was given to stage comedian Fred Stone, and it was discovered that her entire fortune had been spent on her family and on her charities. A vast collection of Oakley's personal possessions, performance memorabilia, and firearms 
or on permanent exhibit in the Garst Museum and the National Annie Oakley Center in Greenville, Ohio. She has been inducted into the Trap Shooting Hall of Fame, the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas, the National Women's Hall of Fame, the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame, and the New Jersey Hall of Fame. Because from 1892 to 1904, Oakley and Butler had made their home in Nutley, New Jersey. Oakley promoted the service of women in combat operations for the United States Armed Forces. She wrote a letter to President William McKinley on April 5, 1898, offering the government the services of a company of 50 lady sharpshooters who would provide their own arms and ammunition should the U.S. go to war with Spain. The Spanish-American War did occur, but Oakley's offer was not accepted. Theodore Roosevelt did, however, name his volunteer cavalry the Rough Riders, after the Buffalo Bills Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the World, where Oakley was a major star. During her lifetime, the theater business began referring to complimentary tickets as Annie Oakley's. Such tickets traditionally have holes punched into them, to prevent them from being resold, reminiscent of the playing cards Oakley shot through during her sharpshooting acts. In the Annie Oakley exhibit at the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas, you'll find one of Annie Oakley's quotes to young women. It reads, Aim at the high mark, and you'll hit it. No, not the first time, not the second time, and maybe not the third. But keep on aiming at that high mark, and keep on shooting, for only practice will make you perfect. Finally, you'll hit the bullseye of success. Oakley's worldwide stardom as a sharpshooter enabled her to earn more money than most of the other performers in the Buffalo Bills show. She did not forget her roots after gaining financial and economic power. She and Butler together often donated to charitable organizations for orphans. Beyond her monetary influence, she proved to be a great influence on women. Oakley believed that women should learn to use a gun for the empowering image that it gave. Laura Browder discusses how Oakley's stardom gave hope to women and youth in her book, Her Best Shot, Women and Guns in America. Oakley pressed for women to be independent and educated. She was a key influence in the creation of the image of the American cowgirl. Through this image, she provided substantial evidence that women are as capable as men when offered the opportunity to prove themselves. This has really been a story of Annie Oakley, and we haven't given much time here to William F. Cody, known to millions back then as Buffalo Bill. His life story reads like something out of an adventure dime novel, and hundreds of those were dedicated to him as well, each having at least a grain of truth in the wild telling of his adventures. In this story, you see him as a master showman, but that was the second half of his life. As a young man, he was one of the few and the proud that rode for the Pony Express. When that job disappeared in favor of the telegraph wire, he joined a team of buffalo hunters who were providing meat for the railroad building crews, which is where he got the name Buffalo Bill. That gave him a good knowledge of the country, and the Indians who fought against the coming of the railroad, and the telegraph, and the killing of buffalo, which was their life sustenance. Cody knew how to fight Indians, and they knew him, and respected his fighting abilities. Soon he was offered jobs as a cavalry scout, and he found himself in the Dakotas and Montana with Terry's column in the weeks just before Custer's massacre took place. He left the cavalry just a week prior to Custer's demise to seek other opportunities with his pal, Texas Jack Omohundro. Omohundro had talked him into performing stage plays, and for a while, they both gained notoriety and popularity acting out some of the things he'd experienced, along with Wild Bill Hickok. That meager start in show business, as the years went by and the West began to disappear, gave Cody the idea that maybe he could recreate it and take it on the road to cities in the East. And people who had never seen a stagecoach, a buffalo, or a live Indian 
could have a chance to see one. That idea would sprout into a million-dollar enterprise of which he, for a while, was the proud head and owner. All that would change over the years as competition, financial losses, and poor investments led him down the slippery path to insolvency. But like Frank Sinatra once said, and Cody could have said, I did it my way, and for a while, his was the best-known name on earth. A little postscript. I was working in the nearby city of Portsmouth, Virginia some years ago, and spotted an historic road sign which marked the spot near the river where William F. Cody performed his last show. That sign has been changed into a stone marker bearing a bronze plaque recalling Cody's final appearance there on November 11, 1916. I found an old article titled When the Wild West Show Came to the End of the Trail. It reads in part, Although the clouds of World War I had already spread to the United States with the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania and the capture and internment of German sea raiders Prince Eitel Frederick and Crone Prince Wilhelm at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard, talk about international politics was dropped with the arrival of Buffalo Bill. It was a new century, far removed from the Old West, with cars and telephones and all kinds of modern conveniences. The Wild West show arrived by train, and just before the doors of the train opened, a brass band began to play, and Mayor James T. Hanby, followed by several cars full of dignitaries, arrived for the greeting and parade to the city's fairgrounds at Washington and Lincoln Streets. In minutes, the station was turned into a sea of local politicians, schoolchildren, sailors, and ordinary citizens straining to get a glimpse of one of America's most colorful living legends. Imagine for just a moment living then, and being there at that place in time, and watching a real live Western hero appear. And that he was. It was almost as if he were a time traveler appearing from a bygone era. The article continues, After much hoopla, the crowd fell silent as Buffalo Bill Cody, the very epitome of America's Western hero, stood before them. Even at 70 years old, his appearance did not disappoint. Dressed in a long buckskin coat and over-the-knee-length cavalry boots, he lifted his wide-brimmed sombrero, revealing his shoulder-length, curling gray hair, which matched the color of his drooping mustache and goatee, and waved to the crowd of well-wishers. Every inch of him a timeless idol. Not since Robert E. Lee had visited Portsmouth 45 years earlier had there been such unbridled enthusiasm for the arrival of a single person. But this was no ordinary mortal, but a living legend, bigger than life, the one and only Buffalo Bill. It was more from myths passed down over the decades than any written or documented source that the legend of Buffalo Bill grew to bigger-than-life proportions. Even had he not embellished his adventures as a buffalo hunter for the Union Pacific Railroad or as a U.S. Cavalry Indian scout, his Wild West show would have been a success as the last vestiges of an Old West that had given away to progress. By the 1870s, America was linked by a railroad from coast to coast. Telegraph lines and barbed wire crisscrossed the open prairies where before only endless paths of buffalo had tread. Trading posts were becoming towns. The West was one. Fortunately, by 1882, Ned Buntline, inventor of the long-barreled Buntline Special, and a longtime Cody friend, suggested that Buffalo Bill uses personal ties to frontiersmen such as James Butler, Wild Bill Hickok, John B. Jack Omohundro, Phoebe Ann Moses, Annie Oakley, and Indian leaders such as Sitting Bull and Redshirt, to form a traveling theater production depicting their adventures in Taming the West. It didn't take long for an aging Buffalo Bill to realize that there might be more gold in promotions and sideshows than Taming the Old West, 
His friends were happy to sign on. Cody also hired hundreds of Indian warriors, purchased a stagecoach from which the show's heroes would fight off an attack in one of the program's most popular numbers, and even had a settler's cabin built as a prop to be raided by Indians, to the delight of thousands of spectators. Cody had no idea how popular the show would become on both sides of the Atlantic. Several trips to England and the continent produced royal command performances and audiences with Queen Victoria, and personal friendships with the Romanovs and presidents. Pleasing the crowned heads of Europe was good for business, but seeing school children stand and cheer as rough riders as they rode into the big top was closest to Cody's heart. By the time of his last show, chronic ill health had taken its toll. Sitting in his hotel room, he was busy planning a new season without any idea that this was to be his finale. Returning to his ranch in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, he died January 10, 1917. Western Union immediately sent a clear-the-line message across the country announcing his death to the nation and the world. Condolences arrived from President Woodrow Wilson, from King George V and Queen Mary of England, and then from across the United States. What Buffalo Bill left in Portsmouth was a legacy of an American West and the national innocence that already was gone by the time his show had arrived. He also left behind a countless number of schoolboys who dream about growing up and being cowboys. We have Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show to thank for that, and I can safely say we have Annie Oakley to thank for inspiring countless young girls to never stop aiming for that higher target. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And thank you for sharing our show with co-workers, friends, and family. We've had some great reviews lately, and I'd like to share them with you. The first one, five stars. Awesome. Great podcast. I love the Lost Treasure stories the most, but nearly all the stories told on this podcast are crazy good. Now from Nick Willard, 28, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, easy listening, five stars. I particularly love the episode of the Generational Breakdown. So much interesting info. Thank you. Down from Noodle Cart, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great way to spend time driving. Five stars. I haul equipment for the local John Deere dealer. I travel all over Montana, and there are a lot of dead spots out there. I'm glad to have your stories to fill in the quiet scenery. I enjoy history, and you, sir, tell a good factual story. I enjoy your podcast very much. Please keep them coming. M.T. Them from Twister, 1886, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. And if you've ever thought of wanting to support us, we encourage that at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's Patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And there you can pledge a few dollars every month to help us make it from 1001 Stories to 2001 Stories. Thank you so much for joining us. There'll be a new story coming next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you haven't checked out our other shows, it's time you did. There's 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we house all of our interviews, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner, 1001 Radio Days, and our newest show which comes out once every two weeks, 1001 Stories from the Old West. Everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe out there. 
and we'll be back soon.